I'm back. Is this on? Is this thing on? I'm back and you will not be getting rid of me anytime soon. Thank you for letting me be out last week. I hated to miss, but um, I went to Nashville to record the Sermon on the Mount study for Lifeway. It was intense. It was three nights where I did three sessions a night of teaching, and it was not anything I'm used to. And on top of that, I've learned a new thing that I love about meeting here at Treach. Like, they have been so generous to us and opened their doors, and the facilities are wonderful and just can't be happy enough about being here. But when we were recording in Nashville, the location that they chose to record in was located 10 yards from a train track. Which meant that every time a train came through, and let me just say, I feel reassured about the state of our economy because many trains came through. Every time the train would come through and hit the horn, they'd be like, stop, and I'd have to stop what I was teaching and wait for the train to go by, which takes some time. And then they would say, okay, just go back to what you were saying before. All righty, sure, I'll just, I'll just back right up to that. So it was really, really hard. And so then, just when I got used to the trains, I don't know if you know this about me, but I really only have two irrational phobias. And one of them is cockroaches. There were not any cockroaches in Nashville that made themselves apparent. But the other one is tornadoes. So on night three, by the time I got done getting used to trains coming through, guess what? Yeah, I'm back there getting the makeup on, and I hear, and Lindsay Britton was with me. Where is Lindsay? Are you in here? Yes, Lindsay and I had quite a week. I think we're getting matching tattoos to, to commemorate it. Um, <laughs> probably of a tornado. Because I'm back there and I'm, it's time for me to go out and teach the third session of that night. So I'm pretty fried because it's like the last of all of the sessions. And I'm like, I hear a sound. Do you hear? It sounds like tornado sirens. And Lindsay, like totally straight faced, says, I don't hear anything. <laughs> and then I come out into the hall and everybody's out there and I'm like, is everything? They're like, yeah, everything is fine and then totally they're like you know what let's just go in the basement for a little bit so we went down in the basement and then later they were like it was raining sideways we didn't really want you to know so I I just thought you know what Lord I have at times said it is hard to run a community Bible study and I repent that night I thought all I need is someone to dump a bucket of cockroaches on my head and we will have the whole thing just covered, every phobia you can imagine. So I am so happy to be back here with familiar faces in a familiar setting and I just really more than ever was just so aware of how this is the place I love and this is the thing I love to do. So yeah, I'm back. You're stuck with me through the rest of the semester. So Anne was here last week. Anne Lincoln filled in for me and did a great job. She talked um, about what it means to show favoritism versus showing favor. And we saw last week in the first part of James chapter 2 that the difference between favoritism and showing favor is that when you show favoritism to someone, you do it because you want something from them in return. There is something to be gained by showing favoritism. And James used it as an example, this contrast between the poor man and the rich man. And we've seen poor come up several times in the book of James. And we're going to talk about the poor again tonight. And then we'll have another shot at it when we get further on into the study. So he keeps returning to this idea. And we're going to talk a little bit about why. Um, but last week what you got to see was that we show favor instead of favoritism. Because favor is expecting nothing in return. And the reason that we show favor instead of favoritism is because that is exactly what the Lord has done for us. He cannot show favoritism to us because he can gain nothing from us. But he shows favor because, precisely because there is nothing he can gain from us. 
He shows favor out of his loving kindness. We don't know why he shows favor. He's not obligated to, but he does. And so we, even though we may not be obligated to show favor to others, we do because we obey the royal law. So last week you saw that genuine faith does not discriminate. That was our marker of genuine faith. And this week in James 2, 14 through 26, we are going to see that genuine faith bears the fruit of good works. Genuine faith bears the fruit of good works works. And so at the end of chapter 1, you'll remember where James said, he said, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. So at the end of chapter 1, we had don't merely hear, but do. And what we're seeing now in chapter 2, towards the end of chapter 2, is don't merely say, but do. In other words, it's not enough to just profess that you have a faith. There should be fruit. There should be the fruit of good works that goes along with a genuine profession of faith. So we pick up tonight in verse 14 of chapter 2. And I'm going to read through the passage and then we will back up and we will pull the passage apart. So starting in verse 14, James says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Okay, so this is the passage that has caused so much trouble throughout the ages because it is a passage that has been used by people to say that faith is not merely by believing. It is also by earning the favor of God. In fact, Martin Luther was very frustrated with the book of James, not because the book of James had a problem, but because people had a problem with the way that they read the book of James. They said it in opposition to the words of Paul. And that's why we spent so much time this week in your homework looking at what that word justified meant. Because We have to distinguish the way that James uses it from the way that Paul uses it. Paul, you saw, uses the word justified to mean to be declared righteous. So in other words, when God declares you righteous because of the work of Christ. So he's talking about salvation. That is what he means when he talks about us being justified. But that is not the way that James is using it. James uses the word justified to mean to be shown as righteous. So in other words, that our works demonstrate that we have true righteousness, two different things. And they represent these two different aspects of our salvation because there is our justification, which Paul speaks to, where we are declared righteous. And then there is our sanctification, where we grow in holiness. And it is that that James is talking about, where through the fruit of good works, we show that our faith is true. 
And so what James is not saying in any way is that if you obey, you are earning salvation or that you are earning righteousness. What he is saying is that you are showing forth the truth of your saving faith. Because saving faith cannot help but bear the fruit of good works, which is what we're going to see in the text tonight. So there are three summary statements. He says three times this sort of reiteration of this idea. One of them is in verse 17, where he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then again in verse 24, another summary statement. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then in verse 26, a third summary statement. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James is very concerned that we understand that when we have genuine saving faith, there must be works that accompany it. And so the way that the church has historically talked about this, to keep the formula straight, is to say, yes, we affirm that we are saved by grace through faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In other words, we are saved by grace through faith alone, but not by a faith that is then unaccompanied by works. And that's what James wants us to see. He wants us in this, in this passage to see not that we add works to faith to make your faith real, but rather that genuine faith will include works, that the two are inseparable. So let's pull apart the passage and see what we can find. Starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? So here again, James is invoking this very sort of communal, hey, I'm in this with you feel. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So this, notice what James does not say. He does not say, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works, right? Do you hear the emphasis there? If someone professes that he has faith, and what kind of faith are we talking about? We know that we're talking about faith in our Lord Jesus Christ because that's what was referenced earlier in the passage. So he's saying, if someone says, I have genuine saving faith, but then there are no works that accompany it. And what he means by works is anything that would resemble the righteousness that accompanies salvation, right? And so he says, if he does not have works, can that faith save him? And we read this and we think that James is posing a question for us to ponder. Because that's kind of just the way that this is phrased in the text. But literally what is going on here is James is not saying, can that faith save him? As though we're supposed to go, hmm, maybe, hmm, maybe not. No, he is saying literally... Can that kind of faith save? Or even more precisely, that faith cannot save him. Can it? Do you see what James is expecting your answer to be? Heck no. He fully expects that you will hear this statement and respond with, no, there's no way that's a saving faith. And he's going to go on and expand on his idea. In verse 15, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So he's just come off of a conversation about showing favoritism to the rich man over the poor man and saying that it should not be so. And before this, he talks about how genuine faith, that true religion looks after widows and orphans, right? So he's had this whole discussion of, no, we have to see with eyes that see beyond just the externals. We have to see need and we have to meet it. And he shifts the conversation a little bit here because which poor is he talking about now? Last week he said, if a poor man comes into the 
the assembly, or if a rich man comes into the assembly. So these are the poor and the rich who are not a part of the community of faith. But here, when he talks about what genuine saving faith looks like when it manifests in works, he says, what if someone who is within the community of faith, a brother and sister, what if they are poorly clothed and lacking in daily food? So what's another word? What would be a more scriptural way to say, I guess you can't say a more scriptural way about something that's in scripture. What would be, <laughs> woo, yeah, good night at Bible study. What would be a different way to say lacking in daily food? Think of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, right? So we're talking about someone who is within the community of believers who does not have the basic necessities for life covered. And what is James saying? He's saying, you're going to offer that person words and you're not going to give them anything else. And I'm supposed to believe that you have genuine saving faith that has transformed your heart to want the things that God wants. So think about this for a second. You and I probably aren't in churches with a lot of people who don't have their physical need. Like, it may not be a daily bread issue, like where they don't actually have physical needs met. But there are these people. There are these people, and sometimes we don't see them because it takes a while for it to become evident who it is that is in crisis in this way. But many times what people need from us is spiritual daily bread. So even if you don't have people in your church, in your community of believers who have need for physical daily bread, there are those who need spiritual daily bread from you. We have two things we can spend. We can spend money to help people, and we can spend what? Time. Those are your two limited resources that you have that you can either invest in people or you can invest only in yourself. So think about the situation here where um, James is addressing this early church. We talked about how as a result of having become converts to the Christian faith, these people were going to experience economic distress. Why? Because they can no longer do business within the Jewish community. They're basically outcasts. And so when you, if you have ever had a time in your life where you have experienced economic difficulty, right? What, how does that make you feel about reaching out to help other people? What kind of happens in those times? We start to circle the wagons, right? And we start looking through our checkbook and looking at where the money is going. And it's really, really hard to not turn our eyes toward the money that we have set aside to give to the church, to give to groups that we want to support. And we begin to think, well, gosh, maybe just for a season I should, I should take that money back. Well, imagine what it's like for James's listeners. They're in a difficult space themselves. They're wondering, are we going to have enough money for our own families? And so then when they see someone who is in greater need than they are, it is going to be a big challenge to them to be able to say, I'm not going to self-protect. I'm not going to live in the fear that I will not have daily bread tomorrow when I see someone who doesn't have daily bread today. And I'm going to give them my resources. Why? Because at the end of the day, they're not my resources. I remember um, years ago, we had an interim pastor at my last church, and he was this big, booming Southern Baptist pastor, preacher, you know, just exactly what you would think of, white hair, giant suit, and he came in and he was telling us about how we had a need in the church that, that they needed to collect money for. It's like the sermon nobody ever wants to preach, where you have to stand up and ask for money. And he stood up, and in his yuckety-yuck pastor voice, and he was the smartest man ever, this was just the way he happened to communicate, he would stand up and he said, now, i got to tell you something. 
God has all the money he needs to do what he needs to do. But it's in your pockets. And when we look around and we see that there are those who do not have daily bread and we wonder why would the Lord command us to ask for our daily bread and then not give it, does it occur to us that the reason those among us don't have their daily bread is because they are to receive it from us as from the Lord? You know that passage in Matthew, Matthew 25, where he talks about when you have done this for the least of these, it is as if you have done it for me. I mean, I think about that. I think about that a lot. I thought about that, what it must have been like for Mary, the mother of Jesus, and how she got to take care of the physical body of Christ. Like she changed his diaper, she made sure that he wore clothes that were appropriate for the weather, she made sure that he was fed. She got to have this ministry to the physical body of Christ. And what a beautiful and sacred thing that must have been. But if Matthew 25 is telling the truth, what it's saying is, is that every time that we reach out and minister to those around us who have a need, we in fact are carrying out the same sacred office that Mary had as the mother of Jesus. That's moving to me. And it makes me want to be open-handed and it makes me want to think about how God's money is in my pockets and I need to get it out and get it into the hands of those who need it. But maybe it's not physical resources that they lack. Maybe it is people that I, this is what I see all the time, people who are dying to have someone just sit and listen. Someone to just pray with them. Someone to empathize with them. Or maybe just someone to connect them to someone who can help with what they're going through. But we're so constricted in how much time we have because we're so busy devoting time to our things that we need to devote time to that we don't leave time to pour into the people that the Lord places in our sphere of influence. We, who are supposed to be storing up treasures in heaven, and what better way to store up treasures in heaven than to take our time and invest it in the people and relationships, those people with souls that go into eternity what a way to store up treasures in heaven, but instead do we devote all of our time to making sure that the money in our So it's a difficult thing. And what James is telling us here is that if you want to know what true and genuine faith looks like, look for it to bear the fruit of compassion. Look for it to bear the fruit of compassion. We think of all of the things that we think genuine faith should look like. And we think that it should be beautiful words that people can hear that draw them to the Lord. Or we think that it should be um, these giant acts that draw attention. Like, um, like uh, standing up and teaching in front of a room. But he says, no, it's these small things. It's this showing of compassion to those who are completely overlooked. Even within the body of believers, it is possible and don't look on those needs and say, go in peace, be warm and filled. You know what that's the equivalent of? Hey, good luck with that. That's, that's what that is like saying. Why? Because we don't want to be inconvenienced by someone else's problem. Or worse, because we're just afraid it will take something that we need, some resource that we need to hold on to. He says genuine faith gives the things needed for the body. It gives what is needed. 
verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And we read dead and we think once alive but now dead. But that is not his meaning there. He means it was never alive in the first place. In other words, there is no such thing as a faith that does not bear fruit. So then he moves on to verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And his response is, you show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What is James saying here? He's basically saying, how on earth are you going to demonstrate your faith to me if there are no works? Like it doesn't even make logical sense. All it means is that you can talk a good game. And then he moves on from there and he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Did you catch that reference there? Do you know what he was referencing? God is one. That is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. That's the Shema. It is the best known passage in in the scriptures to the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then it is followed by, you shall love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so he says, oh, is that what you believe? You believe that God is one? You do well. But guess what? Even the demons believe that. You're not that far ahead of the demons. And this is interesting to think about. What is demonic belief like? Here's what John MacArthur has to say on that. He says, as far as factual doctrine is concerned, demons are monotheists, all of whom know and believe there is one true God, They also are very much aware that Scripture is God's Word, that Jesus Christ is God's Son, that salvation is by grace through faith, that Jesus died, was buried, and raised to atone for the sins of the world, and that he ascended to heaven and is now seated at his Father's right hand. They know quite well that there is a literal heaven and a literal hell. They doubtless have a clearer knowledge of the millennium and its related truths than does even the most devoted Bible scholar or Nicolas Cage. But all of that orthodox knowledge, divinely and eternally significant, as it is, cannot save them. They know the truth about God, Christ, and the Spirit, but hate the truth and hate them. You know what he just did there in that paragraph? He walks you through the historic creed of the church. Anybody know? I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only son. That whole thing. That's what he did. He walked you through it, and he said, you know what? The demons can recite the Nicene Creed with a clear conscience. But you know what they can't do? They can't say that they love it. And they can't say that they love the God that it describes. But you know what the demons have on you and me? They believe that all of those things are true. And they have the good sense to shudder. But you and I are like, meh. Yeah, that's who God is. But you know what? I'm just going to profess to have faith. And not have anything that demonstrates that my faith is real. So in some sense, the demons are a little ahead of us because they know enough to know that God is deserving of our fear. Now you and I know that we don't have to fear God in that sense because why? Because we have received the righteousness of Christ. But we better not take that lightly. We need to understand that he is both a transcendent God and that he is also God nearby. That he is our Father who is in heaven, as the Lord's Prayer says. So, he says, even the demons believe and shudder. And then he says in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Now catch this because you probably didn't know this when you were studying it earlier this week, but that term useless means barren. It's going to matter because of the example we're about to get into. Do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is barren? And then he's going to give us the example of Abraham. And what do we know about Abraham for years and years and years? What was Abraham? Barren. Barren. But after a long, long time, what happened? The Lord gave, as he had promised, a son through whom the nation of Israel was going to come. And that they would be as numerous as the stars. And so this son Isaac for whom Abraham and Sarah waited for years and years and years is the promised son that all of the promises hinge on. Right? And so you went and you looked at that story in Genesis 22 where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, and you sacrifice him. And Abraham who is old, he is old at this point and Isaac is probably about 20 years old. They go to the place where they build an altar out of wood. And why did they build an altar out of wood? Because the plan is, is that once Abraham has raised the knife to slay his son Isaac, who represents the full and total promise of God's faithfulness, Then he is to light the altar on fire and Abraham is to watch as Isaac is completely consumed. Abraham, who's probably too old to lift Isaac onto the altar, Isaac would have to willingly place himself there. This picture of the sacrifice of Christ that is to come years later. But what does it say? You know what Hebrews says about Abraham, why he went through with it, why he raised the knife, why he stood there with the knife ready to drop? Hebrews 11 tells us that he believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Even if he's been consumed by fire, that's some pretty serious action following on the heels of genuine faith. And you notice here what happens. Verse 22 in uh, James chapter 2 says, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So he says his faith was active along with his works and completed by it. This completed idea is what we saw earlier. It means mature and complete, right? It doesn't mean that his faith was somehow incomplete. It means it was brought to the fullness of what it was going to bear. It's like a fruit tree that is not yet bearing fruit, but you know without a doubt that there will be fruit that is born at some point. And that's what we see in that story. We see coming to fruition what was a sure and certain thing, the blossoming and the fruiting of Abraham's faith as he holds the knife over his son. Verse 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, when was this scripture spoken? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That was back in Genesis chapter 15. Okay, so we're in Genesis chapter 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac, which means that Abraham had saving faith back in Genesis chapter 15. And we see the fruit of it in Genesis chapter 22. Now just keep that in mind. So it says the scripture was fulfilled that said he believed God and it was counted. It was credited to him as righteousness. And so that's that understanding that Paul has of salvation is by grace through faith alone. It is credited to him as righteousness. And then later we see how that genuine faith turns into 
a very bold display. And, and you saw that in, in Genesis chapter 22, God says, now I know, now I know that you fear God. That's what he says to Abraham when Abraham is about to kill Isaac. And what is he saying? Is God saying, oh, I wasn't sure, but now I know? No, God holds all knowledge. So the point there is we're speaking of God in human terms so that we understand that who is it that knows? Who knows that he fears God? Abraham, right? Abraham knows, and God has set him in a place where his faith for God has been revealed to be true. And he spares Isaac's life. But it is the fruit of a faith that was already granted to him back in chapter 15. And so at the end of verse 23, it says that Abraham was called a friend of God. He was called a friend of God. I think it's interesting that Abraham is called a friend of God, but nowhere calls God his friend. Have you ever noticed that? We have a tendency in church culture today to speak of God as our friend. And we bring him down to our level. And why do we say, you know, when, when we say that, it's like we want to bring him onto our level. And it's there that we should probably take a little instruction from those demons who know that if God is who he says he is, then it is one thing for God to say, I call you a friend. But we would never presume ourselves to say, oh yeah, that's my friend. He has shown friendship toward us and it is a privilege to be called his friend. And you and I are called his friend in the finished work of Christ. But we do not presume to say, yeah, that's my friend. Because it makes him small, it diminishes him, and he is so much more than that. Friendship with God is a privilege. He says in verse 24, so you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Justified meaning he is shown to have genuine faith through his works, not just by a profession of faith alone. So I have a... Um, an ornamental pear tree in my yard and right now it's blooming does anybody have one of these and it does so it, it looks gorgeous right I mean it looks like every other tree but what this tree does not do is it does not bear fruit in fact it has been um, it has been developed so that it will not you know it's it's been it's been what do you call that bread what's the word for trees oh come on you horticulturalists it it has been Grafted, thank you. Yes, so basically it has, they've, they've taken time to come up with this tree that looks just like a pear tree, but who wants all those pears? So it just blooms and looks nice, and then you don't have the pears. So, but what it does do is it makes these little funny things that not even the squirrels want, and they fall all over the car and they make a mess. It's pretty much a worthless tree. Because it looks like it's going to bear fruit and then nothing ever happens. And the thing is, is no matter what we do, no matter what fertilizer we put on it, no matter what exposure it gets, no matter how much rain it gets, is that tree ever going to bear fruit? No, because it is not capable of bearing fruit. And another thing that's happened is with the way that this tree has been genetically altered is it's a very brittle tree. You've seen this. You know what happens when a big storm blows through here. What happens to those pear trees? They split, Right. Okay, but, but not those hardy trees that actually grow the fruit. And a tree that is bred, that is cultivated to be a fruit-bearing tree, 
will bear fruit again and again and again and again. And it may take years before it is mature enough to start bearing fruit, but it is a certainty that a pear tree, a Bartlett pear tree, will grow Bartlett pears, the end. And in fact, if I prune it just right, if I take some some tough cuts to it to get it to grow just the way that it should, it's going to bear even more fruit than it otherwise would. And this is the distinction that's being made here, and this is what we see in Scripture. You saw this week when you looked in your homework where it talked about how those who abide in me, when their vine is a part of me, then they will bear fruit. This is what we talk about when we talk about genuine faith. This is what Jesus talks about in the parables when he talks about the parable of the wheat and the weeds. These two plants that look exactly the same, and the only way that you can tell them apart is that one eventually does what? Bears fruit, and the weeds don't. And were the weeds ever going to? Were they going to suddenly miraculously be changed into fruit-bearing plants? No. So those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have genuine saving faith, you need to know you will bear fruit. You should take hope from that. Because every week when I start opening up James and I see all the stuff that's still really messed up in me, I start thinking, why am I even trying this? This is ridiculous. Why are these girls coming back every week? This is a beating i got to see more stuff that I'm not doing right. And this is the nature of growing in maturity. It is that we continually see more and more of our sin the more we grow in our desire to be holy. But sometimes we lose track of the beautiful truth that there are areas in our life that even now are bearing fruit. And do we celebrate that? Because we need to. We need to focus in on that and say, okay, I used to be like this, but I'm not anymore. There is fruit there. Because the promise of that is that if the Lord can bring about fruitfulness in this area of my life where things are better than they used to be, then this area over here where he is showing my sin, do you know what's going on over there? He is tilling that soil knowing that with certainty there will be a fruitful harvest there as well. Take Hope from the places that you have already seen fruitfulness occur in your life. Because the scripture is telling us and James is telling us there is no such thing as genuine saving faith without fruit. And that is a big hopeful thing. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The whole goal of planting a fruit tree is that it would bear fruit. You are plantings of the Lord. You will bear fruit. Okay, so then he's going to give us one other example, and I love this one. And I would like to talk about it a lot, but I'm not going to, because when we come back in the fall, we are going to talk, but we're going to do the book of Joshua. So I'm not going to give it all to you now, but we'll talk about a little of it now. So he gives us this second example of what faith and works and right relation looks like. Verse 25, he says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So we saw with the story of Abraham that he actually had a profession of saving faith back in chapter 15, and then in chapter 22 we saw that come to fruition. So let's take a look. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 2 and read a little bit of Rahab's story to see if we can figure out what's going on there. Joshua chapter 2. I know you looked at it in your homework this week, but I just want us to take a little bit of a closer look at it now. 
So here's where we are, right? This is Joshua has taken over um, for Moses, and they're ready to go in and, and have the conquest of Canaan. They're going to go into the promised land, but there are people who are living in the promised land that they have to get out so that they can inhabit it. And so they go in, and Joshua sends out spies to kind of see how things are going to go. And the first place that he sends them to is Jericho. And living in the wall of the city of Jericho is this woman Rahab, and Rahab is a prostitute. And I had to laugh because I can't tell you how many uh, commentators I read who will be like, now, um, in this story, the Lord is not condoning her lying or her prostitution. He just wants to say, and I'm like, give me a break, guys. Come on, can we talk about this? Like, how many women wake up in the morning and go, you know what I want to be when I grow up? A prostitute. As though Rahab is like living her life's wildest dreams being a prostitute in the walls of Jericho. I think we know enough about human trafficking now and the nature of prostitution to say that it was probably not her lifelong dream to be in the profession that she was in. And who knows if maybe one of the reasons she wasn't open and receptive to the message of the Lord was because she was a woman in desperate circumstances. Who knows? And is she wrong to lie? Well, you'll have to wait till the fall for that. I'm not going to get into that. We don't have enough time. Hold on, backing off, just, and forget all that when you come back in the fall and look really surprised when I say it again. So here we go. So she has taken the men into her house, and the men of the city know the king of Jericho. He's like the mayor. You know, he's like, hey, um, listen, what's going on there? And she says, oh, yeah, 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 well, I just sent him off another way, and she's hiding them up on the roof. So verse 8, it says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Listen to this part. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. Why does Rahab hide these men? Why does she forward the work of the Lord in Jericho? Did you hear her profession of faith? She knows who he is. She knows who the Lord is. She's not being justified by her works in the sense that her works are saving her. She's just demonstrated she's already been redeemed by some miracle. The Lord has revealed himself to her living as a prostitute in the walls of Jericho. And her response is, i got to do something to help. I've got a role in this. There's a part for me to play. And this is why this is such a great illustration Look at the contrast that James has set up for us here, okay? Who was our first example? Abraham, father of the Hebrew nation. There is not a more revered historical figure in Judaism. He is father Abraham. So he is a man. He is a Jew. He is the original Jew. And he is well respected and loved. And then who does James contrast that with? Rahab, who is a prostitute, a Canaanite, and a woman. So beneath our consideration that why does she even find her way into this account? What is James saying? 
from the greatest to the least, faith, genuine faith, will bear the fruit of good works. Rahab's precious response to having received grace is equally beautiful to that of Father Abraham laying Isaac on the altar. She is commended alongside of him. Both of them appear in Hebrews 11 in the roll call of the faithful. Who are you? Are you the least in the kingdom of heaven? Or are you someone who meets with the approval of all and who is highly loved and esteemed? We are all equally capable and called to bear fruit before the Lord in a way that forwards the kingdom and brings honor and glory to him. So here's the thing. You hear a lot of times that Christianity is just about resting in the finished work of Christ. And, and we, love, we love that message, and it totally is. But I would refine that. I would say salvation is about resting in the finished work of Christ. In other words, we are justified by the work of Christ on the cross as regards to salvation. But here's another way to think about Christianity. It costs us nothing to become a Christian. But it costs us everything to live like one. I think that's what Abraham want to say to us. Abraham sacrifice his one and only son, the one through whom the promise will come. Rahab, who knows that if she has found out, she and her whole family that she's asked these men to protect are dead. They're dead whether the city falls or the city stands. And they lay everything on the line as a gracious response to what they have received from the Lord. It costs us nothing to become a Christian. It costs us everything to live like one. A daily dying to self, a crucifying of the flesh, a cutting off of the arm, a gouging out of the eye in spiritual terms. Why? Because we so want to be fruitful. Not that we would earn the Lord's favor, but that we would celebrate and demonstrate the truth of what a changed heart looks like. Yes, I am grafted into the vine. Look at the fruit that comes from that. And so we've moved far beyond just giving daily bread to someone who is needy, just this basic show of compassion to these beautiful examples of people who are willing to risk it all because of what the Lord has done. There is room in our understanding of the good works that accompany faith for both the smallest acts of kindness and the most noticeable, overwhelming, enormous gestures. It all counts. It all counts. It is all the fruit of righteousness. We are saved by grace through faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Genuine faith does bear the fruit of good works. So as you go through your week this week, I want to ask you, is there a place where you are more fruitful than perhaps you have been? Has the Lord been pruning you in some area? Would he like to cut off some extra branches? Maybe it's in the issue of your finances. Maybe it's in the issue of your time. 
Is there somewhere where the Lord wants to make room in your life for fruitfulness to occur in a way that it has not yet? Ask him to show you where those places are. Ask him to give you eyes to see where compassion needs to be given within the community of believers and outside Right, Because we know that James is not saying here, hey, just be sure you look after those who are in the community of faith. What's he saying? He's saying, of all places, it should happen there. But certainly other places as well. Who is the Lord placing in your sphere of influence? Who he wants you to be hands and feet to? And so demonstrate that you know and understand the deep and abiding nature of the saving faith you have in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you that his righteousness has been given to us, credited to us. And we pray, Lord, now that we would bear fruit that attests to the truth of that change in our lives. We ask you, Lord, to help us be those who do unto the least of these the things that you would have us to do. That if someone lacks daily bread, we would not say, Lord, why have you not provided it? But we would say, Lord, how can we be the means by which you provide daily bread? We thank you, Father, for the example of Father Abraham and of Rahab. We thank you that both high and low can bring honor to you by bearing the fruit of righteousness. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.